The man sat in a damp prison cell in South Africa. It was June of 1969, and the man was looking down at the letter that he was writing to his two little girls. His two little girls, he had just found out, who were now on their own, as he himself was in prison for opposing white majority rule in South Africa. He had just learned that his wife, Winnie, had also been arrested and was now in jail. And so Nelson Mandela, that 23rd of June, 1969, hand wrote this letter to his little girls. My darlings, once again our beloved mummy has been arrested And now she and Daddy are both away in jail. It may be many months or even years before you see her again. And for as long as you may live, for a long time you may live like orphans, without your own home and without your parents, without the natural love, affection, and protection that Mommy used to give you. Now you will get no birthday or Christmas parties, no presents or new dresses, No shoes and no toys. Gone are the days when, after having a warm bath in the evening, you would sit at table with mummy and enjoy her good and simple food. Gone are the comfortable beds, the warm blankets, and the clean linen she used to provide. The legacy of apartheid in South Africa could be very cruel. A white minority of perhaps four million lived a prosperous first world lifestyle with tree-lined suburban streets, big houses with swimming pools in back. They had maids, they had housekeepers, they had groundskeepers, they had shopping malls and safe all-white neighborhoods with top-notch universities and world-class European standard health care. And yet side by side with those four million whites always just out of sight, just over a hill, just behind a fence, just behind a row of shrubs, lived an impoverished minority of over 20 million black South Africans in what was described at the time as third world living conditions. They were bussed from their slums into white cities and neighborhoods during daylight hours so that they could provide the lawn care and the maid service so that they could do the menial jobs so that the white minority could fill out all the professional jobs with the big paychecks. Black South Africans were not allowed to vote. They had substandard schools in block buildings with no air conditioning and often no windows. They had substandard clinics. Those who protested white minority rule could face arrest. They could lose their job. They could go into internal exile or external exile, or they could be imprisoned. As a child in the 1980s, I recall watching the police brutality on TV news networks. I remember the global calls to divest from South Africa, the boycotts, not playing Sun City. The worst of the racial oppression was carried out by the special branch of the South African security services. They were something of a a cross between the FBI, the CIA, and the KGB. They functioned to protect white government officials like President de Klerk, but they were also the government's chief enforcers. Sometimes activists went missing. Sometimes their bodies would be discovered later. That was the work of the special branch 
of the South African Security Service. There was great animosity between a white minority with all the power and impoverished black South Africans of different tribes and backgrounds. Racism was not invented in the first century, friends. We're going to look at a passage in which the early church, a Jewish church, culturally Jewish, religiously Jewish, ethnically Jewish, in which an an all-Jewish church where the Jews had all the power, they were all the apostles, they were all of the deacons, they were all of the elders, where they began looking around and they began noticing that their mission field was changing and their context was changing. They were no longer just talking about Jesus with other Jews. They were talking with G- about Jesus with Gentiles and even pagans. And many of them were being converted and they looked around a small Jewish minority with all the power in the church and they looked around at their culture and they realized that things were changing fast and they didn't have a handle on it and they didn't know what they were going to do and there was conflict and there was tension in the early church because Jews and Gentiles hated each other. To a Jew, a Gentile was racially inferior, ignorant, unclean, savage, barbaric, filled with abominations, to be in contact with them was to become unclean before God. And to a Gentile, a Jew was arrogant and stubborn and judgmental. We're going to look at a passage now. It's Acts chapter 15, in which the church gathered its elders and its apostles together to discuss what do we do with all of these Gentiles who are starting to become followers of Jesus? Must they, like us, be Jewish? Must their men be circumcised? Must they obey the Jewish food, kosher food laws? Must they offer all the offerings and expectations of the law of Moses? Acts chapter 15, we're beginning in verse 5. I'm going to read through 21. You can follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up in this meeting of elders and apostles. And they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear From my lips, the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them his Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, that they are saved. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, Listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking 
from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. And James continues, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. It was an incredibly difficult time in the early church. You saw this flood of stories about the Gentiles coming in, and, and they were frankly offensive. They were religiously offensive to Jews, but they were also culturally offensive to the Jewish people. And so they gather the elders and the apostles together to discuss this topic. And there's a lot going on beneath the surface here because Jews don't want to be in fellowship with people they consider unclean or inferior that do things the wrong way that are beneath them. And it offended their sensibilities. And so Peter gets up in this meeting and he speaks and he talks about how he saw that, that, that Gentiles actually received the message about Jesus and believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his son, Jesus Christ. And then God confirmed that they were indeed Christians by pouring out his Holy Spirit on them. And so, so we then baptized them and he asked the question. He says, how could we then turn around? We Jews who who for centuries have carried the weight of the law of Moses and failed and failed and failed again, how could we then throw all of these regulations onto them if God's already chosen them? They've already been baptized. They're already justified. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, he says. How can we throw on them something that we haven't been able to do ourselves? But then the room gets quiet. Peter's made his case. He seems to be kind of chief among the apostles in the book of Acts. And he's made a case, and he's made a good case, that this seems to be what God is doing, but all of the air would have been sucked out of the room when another apostle stands up. It was the most tense, most awkward moment in that meeting as James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, stood up. James, the the great... A, 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 a carrier of weight and tradition. James, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, that most Jewish of churches, where everybody was a Jew, where everybody was circumcised and everybody ate kosher. James, that carrier of the great tradition who wrote the book of James, the letter from James, in which he warned about easy believism, in which he said that it, it's not just those who say they believe, but those who do the will of God who are truly the object of God's desire and heart. You could almost have heard and felt the palpable silence as Peter has made his argument and now James rises to make his rebuttal. Surely James will, 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 will put these liberals in their place. Surely James will stand up for righteousness. Surely James will stand up for the law of the Lord and make these Gentiles obey. Except that's not what James does. 
It's interesting, in a room full of apostles, no one had a word from the Lord. No one felt the Holy Spirit moving. Nobody said, God is giving me a vision. No, an apostle James, what does he do? He stands up, everyone is silent. And he pulls out the Bible, the scroll of Amos. And he reads from the scroll, from the prophecy, from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Hebrew Jewish Bible. He reads from the prophet Amos that the Gentiles will bear the name of the Lord. And they go about that hard work of building consensus, looking at Scripture, lining it up with what's really happening as they come to some conclusions. This is an incredibly tense time for the early church, and they're asking a question. If you read between the lines, what question are they asking? They're asking this, how are we getting in the way of the gospel reaching the lost? How, for one thing, are our religious traditions getting in the way? Our, our laws of Moses, our requirements of circumcision, of not mixing fabrics, of not shaving sideburns, of doing various ceremonies and, and the Passover and all of this. How is all of this getting in the way? Our religious traditions... And it's a very sophisticated answer that and James is the one who proposes it. He who was probably most intimately aware of the Hebrew Scriptures. He, he says, if, if you read between the lines, what he's doing is he's going back to a time when God dealt very directly with the Gentiles. When God made a covenant with the Gentiles. He says, you know, Moses has been preached in all of our synagogues and it hasn't changed the world. But, but that's, that's the, the Word of God to the Jewish nation, to the Jewish people. That, that's, that's what you see in the legislation of Leviticus and, 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 and Deuteronomy and, and even the last part of, of the book of Exodus. And, and he's saying, you know, these laws, we've got to get before those. When, because that's the Jews. That's for the children of Abraham to keep us separate, but God's doing something different. And when did God make a covenant with all creation? with all the world, with all of the Gentiles. You can go back to Genesis 1 when God did that, saying, saying you know, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but, but it happened again. After God had destroyed the earth by flood, in the ninth chapter of Genesis, God had entered into a covenant with all humanity through their surviving representative, the man who had built an ark, the man who saw when God appointed the rainbow as, as the reminder. Who did God make a covenant with? You kids know this. He made a covenant with, with, with Noah, actually. That too. But with Noah, all of the Gentiles. And that stipulations of that were that you wouldn't drink blood. You wouldn't eat meat that still has its lifeblood in it. Where are these little random things coming from? But they're going back to creation and to the renewal of creation after the flood and saying that Gentiles were required to believe and to do everything that God had revealed in creation itself. And so they talk about sexual immorality because in the very beginning in Genesis, God made Adam and Eve and, and He appointed them to, to have sexual intimacy in that one flesh union of one man and one woman forever. And, and everything outside of that's forbidden. And they're going back to the covenant with Noah and saying, don't torture animals, don't strangle them, don't drink their blood. Why? Because that was God's covenant with the Gentiles. 
that moral law of God that is summarized in the Ten Commandments that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, in the law of love, that we see you know, summarized in, in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, those universal moral norms that apply to everybody. You Gentiles still have to obey that. You're not off the hook. Anything that's the heart of God, you have to follow because God's nature doesn't change. It's written in the fabric of creation. But circumcision, the food laws, these were given to the Jews. It's a very sophisticated argument. How are our religious traditions getting in the way of the gospel? You know, Philip Yancey talks about long ago when he was a, a student at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, they had a really strict law a rule that students were not under any circumstances allowed to have facial hair. Uh, facial hair was inappropriate for a Christian man. It was disrespectful. And every day, all of these students at Moody Bible Institute would walk beneath the, the portrait of, of D.L. Moody, the founder. We've got a slide of that. Could we get that slide? How are our religious traditions getting in the way of the gospel? That's one thing they were asking, but they were also, also asking, how are our cultural traditions getting in the way of the gospel? Because these were Jews. This wasn't just a systematic theology sitting on a shelf. This was their culture, their heritage, their race, their identity as a people that was at stake. And they could, they could count. They knew how many Gentiles there were, a lot more than the Jews. And the handwriting was on the wall. And they could stop it right then and there. It was like you can imagine 50,000 gallons of Gentile water getting poured into the little Hebrew cup of lemonade. It's going to be really watered down lemonade. We're going to lose our culture here, our values. Wonder what that would be like to be in a racially diverse context, realizing that not everybody around is looking like you and that things might have to change. You know, it would be fine if they were just preaching the gospel to fellow Jews, but once they're in a diverse context, they've got to change some things. And this is the church changing some things. What about us? Historically, culturally white church for the last century in a context in the central corridor of St. Louis that is incredibly diverse. People from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. They are more foreign-born than there are youth within a three-mile radius of this building. You've got a racially diverse, ethnically diverse, internationally diverse context here. And, 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 and for us, I think the call here is to ask that same question. How are our cultural values, our norms, as white people, for those of you who are white, the dominant group, how are, they, how are they getting in the way of the gospel? Say, Greg, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a white culture. Yeah, Americans are the only people who don't think they have an accent. Um, they say, no, man, I'm, I'm, we're vanilla. Uh, you know, we're just neutral. But here's, we, if there's one thing you take from this sermon, um, it's this one. Vanilla is a flavoring. Vanilla is not the absence of flavor. Vanilla is something you add to a neutral base in order to make it white. In order to make it flavorful with whiteness and vanillaness. Now, your food, white people, if I could just talk to you white people, everybody else just sit there and listen to me talk to the white people here. 
your food is ethnic food. You don't go to Bangkok or Beirut or, or Buenos Aires and open up your menu in your restaurant and say, where's the casserole section? Because casseroles are ethnic food. White people, American ethnic food made with Campbell's soup mix. It's just nuts. Your culture, though, is not normative. It's like being right-handed. Uh, uh, you know, if, if you can imagine a culture of right-handed people building a world to advance the progress, prosperity, and to benefit right-handed people. And so you, you then build this thing, and it just seems normal. They're, you're not intentionally trying to exclude anybody. You're just building a world for right-handed people. Any left-handed people in the room? You're so smart. Um, and I think it's because you spent your entire life going up to the microwave door and reaching around awkwardly and opening it up. You spent your life in those awful desks where you're writing over here because the desk is attached. Yeah, you know what this is like. It's not neutral. Right-handed is a culture. Now, what does it mean for us as a church to say, okay, how have we, what's our right-handedness? Where's, where's our whiteness? How have we built a church to advance a mission to white Americans, to benefit the spiritual growth of white Americans, to make it easy and natural doing things the way white Americans do it. And then, then our culture has changed and our context has changed. And that would be fine if this were, you know, rural Iowa in an all-white, all-American context. But suddenly we're in an internationally diverse, with all these foreign-born people context, and a racially diverse context. And, 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 and then we've got to ask, how do we love the person who's not right-handed? How do we accommodate? How do we change how we do things? Not to be neutral, there's no cultural neutrality, but to contextualize for a diverse central corridor of, of St. Louis. Um, you know, all the assumptions that you have as, as, as white people, there's such a, you know, there's definite white American cultural assumptions. You know, if you picture your family, take a photograph of your family, who's your family? What's the ideal normative family for white Americans? It has a mom, and it has a, a dad, and it has children, and that's it. Now, do you realize how unique that is culturally? Because in most of the world throughout history, the family, your household included grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles and cousins and, and 13 sheep and two mules and a, a, a cow, uh, you know. But it's an assumption that we have. You know, white culture assumes that a good leader is one who takes charge, runs people over, and gets things done. We assume that the proper attention is on the individual, not on the group identity. We believe individuals should be in absolute control of their built environment. We believe that competition is be better than collaborative decision-making. We believe that conflict should be avoided, so we're always angry and passive-aggressive with one another because we never say what we're really thinking. Uh, we believe that emotion should be hidden. You should stuff your emotions, and heaven forbid somebody actually expresses their emotions in public. Oh, I don't disagree with her, but oh, I think she just needs to watch her tone and not get so angry. Always, always trying to manage everybody else's tone. In a congregational meeting, somebody gets upset. <gasps> Is this okay? We're white people. Yeah. Yeah. How many of you have ever worked in a workplace in which you were actually uh, rewarded for showing emotion? Uh, you know, you should keep your voice down. We're inside. Use your inside voice. White people have inside voices, and you should always use them when you're outside too because somebody might be watching. You know? 
you should work hard and gain measurable results. You should be industrious. You should continually keep an eye on the clock and be punctual. And you need to have one clock on your wrist and one on the pulpit in front of you and another one here and one by your bedside and one on your desk and one on your wall because everything has to be done within three minutes of its deadline. Think of all those biblical verses about punctuality. <laughs> Except they didn't have clocks. Nobody knew what time it was. It's about noonish. How'd they do church? Goodness, y'all get all bent out of shape if we go past 12.05. You know, they didn't have a 12.05. Minutes are a human construct. They did not exist. Am I saying these are bad values? No, there is a lot to praise about white culture in America. Um, you know, when my car breaks down in the middle of nowhere and it's not moving, I want to see a big white guy with facial hair because he's the one who can rescue me because his culture says it's his job to fix everything he comes across and I want somebody to fix something because I don't know anything about cars. You know, it's, not, it, it's just how are we blind to our assumptions and are we doing things that just seem normal to us? Just common sense that are actually showing the door to someone else from a different culture, a different context. And what will it look like for us to very intentionally say, no, we're going to contextualize for everyone around us so that we are not getting in the way of the gospel because of our cultural assumptions. We're looking at the Jewish church here, and they are sacrificing their history. They are sacrificing their cultural distinctives. They are sacrificing their values and assumptions in order to welcome believers from a different race, a different culture, a different background. What do you think it feels like to do that? That's not easy. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I love the idea of diversity. And by that, they mean doing things the white way, and they want um, black and Asian and Latino people to show up and be happy. And, and that's not diversity. The cost of diversity is that everybody has to be uncomfortable and everybody has to be doing things a little different than seems natural to them because everybody is carrying some of the cost of that. These were Jewish followers of Jesus and they were deciding to risk their values, their religious traditions, and, and that would feel like dying. I don't think you can overstate how difficult this would have been for them. You know... In 1992, there was a referendum in South Africa. And only white people were allowed to vote in it because only white people had the vote, because only white people were full voting citizens. And the referendum was to decide whether they should move forward with dismantling the system of apartheid and handing over power to the black majority. Think of what would have gone through their minds. Are we going to become poor? Will we be driven out? Will be, we be absorbed and lose our cultural distinctives? What about our Afrikaans language? What about our Dutch heritage? What about our cultural traditions? Are we, we're going to be outnumbered six or seven to one. We've lived this same way in this land for 350 years. We've been here longer than most of the tribes that have since settled and become South Africans too. We fought for this land. And we're going to be handing over power to our historic enemies? Losing our privilege? I mean, you know a majority government, once you take our tax base and you delete, dilute it among seven times as many people, they're not going to be able to pay for our top-notch white schools for our white children. They're not going to be able to pay for our top-notch health care. 
they're not going to be able to, to provide the kind of security that we live in. People of different races are going to be able to walk through our neighborhoods, and because there will be no more pass laws, we're not going to be able to know who's walking down our street. What if somebody who's really angry over past injustice comes and starts terrorizing me or my household or my wife or my children in my neighborhood? You know, this is something where we're going to lose our first world highways, our our first world lifestyle. How do I know there won't be vengeance against me? Are we going to become just another third world country after all the work we've done? How do I know I'm not going to lose everything? Like I said, only white people got the vote in the 1992 referendum. The vote yes was to hand over power. There were feelings of racial tension, ethnic fear, national pride. The vote was tense. There was a massive right-wing backlash against it. And no one could predict the outcome in all of human history. No dominant people group had ever voluntarily voted to give up power to a, minor- to a minority. And after the polls closed, people waited up for hours They waited and waited for the votes to come in, for the tallies to come in. There was so much uncertainty. Hours passing by. Every eye was glued to the television that night, and then the results were in. An announcement came. Everybody got close to the screen. They turned up the volume. They shushed the kids. 68% of white South Africans had voted to give up their power. More than two out of three had said, yes, it's time. We need to change. And for the first time ever, black and white South Africans were cheering together. Only it wasn't the first time a dominant people group had voted to give up power to a majority. Because that's what was happening at the Jerusalem Council in AD 50. A kosher Jewish circumcised church was filled with Jewish apostles and Jewish elders, and those Jews voted to open the floodgates to let the Gentiles in without letting anything get in the way of the gospel. They could count. They knew what it would mean. Everything was going to change, and they gave it all up. And what was riding on that vote, friends? What was riding on that vote was your salvation. Nothing would come in the way of the gospel reaching the nations. Friends, what can make us willing to give up our own religious values, our own cultural values, everything that's not the moral law of God expressed from the beginning, summarized in the commandments, everything that's not Jesus. Friends, if you have Jesus, you have a better identity than white culture will ever give you. See, we go to such great lengths to build our identity on something. It can be our culture, it can be our education, it can be our hard work, it can be our relationships, our family, our political perspective, our cultural identity. Richard Lovelace describes the psychology of that. He says, uneasiness about justification that is being accepted by God by grace alone. Uneasiness about justification historically produced a flowering of asceticism reflecting an unconscious need for lists and, and clean and unclean activities and a rebirth of Pharisaism. Hardline fundamentalists in the early church like Tertullian ruled out many intellectual activities. They ruled out the theater because of its origins in pagan worship. 
They ruled out dancing because it might inflame ill-controlled sexual passions. They ruled out cosmetics because if God wanted you to smell like a flower, he would have given you a crop of them on your head. And thus, those who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. And in their frantic search, they not only cling to the shreds of ability and righteousness they find in themselves, but they fix upon their race, their membership in a political party, their familiar social or ecclesiastical patterns, and their culture as means of self-recommendation. The culture is put on as if it were armor against self-doubt, but it becomes a mental straitjacket which cleaves to the flesh and can never be removed except through the comprehensive faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Friends, all these things we trust to recommend ourselves, St. Paul calls them junk, trash, rubbish, next to the surpassing greatness of knowing and being known by Christ. You see, in Jesus, you have something that is so much more precious. Verses 8 through 11, God accepted them just as He did us. He makes no distinction between us and them. He purified your hearts by faith. We believe it's through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Friends, are you hearing that language? God has already accepted you. You were entered into His household. You were treasured. You are precious. God has accepted you. That's overflowing comfort. You can stop trying to commend yourself now. You can stop working. You can stop trying to be someone individually or collectively. Throw that trash away and come to Jesus. He is the one that gives you identity. He is the one through whom you are saved. It is God who has accepted you. And if you have God's favor and God's blessing, you don't need anything else. It's the gospel, friends, that Christ has died for sinners. Verse 14, God is taking a people for Himself, friends. That is security. Continually loved, not just tolerated, but treasured. Your very own people of God, treasured by Him now and forever. And how did it happen? It is through Jesus you are saved. How did it happen? But God the Son left the ultimate, the ultimate gated community in heaven. He gave up his religious traditions. He had always been worshipped. He gave that up. He gave up his cultural norms by becoming a first century Jew impoverished just like everybody else. A man among men. And he did it for you so that he could fling open the doors of that gated community to let in everybody who comes in the name of Jesus. He flings open the doors of heaven to bid the broken and the bruised, the shamed and the guilty, the dejected and the afraid from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. He throws open the doors of His heaven and He says, come on in. I've been expecting you. I've prepared a place for you. The 2009 movie Invictus tells the story of how Nelson Mandela, portrayed by Morgan Freeman, in his first term as president of South Africa, showed unconditional love and support for the South African rugby team, who was, well, they were all white guys, as the first black president of a mixed-race country. But in one scene early in the film, we get a picture of what it meant for him to deal with the injustices of the past. Because Mandela's efforts at racial reconciliation were not easy 
particularly supporting a bunch of white guys. So we have this scene here. Uh, we'll stay there for a second. Uh, as the scene begins, we see five black men sitting in a small office in the president's mansion. And uh, they comprise President Mandela's security team. We see the leader of the team, Jason Shabala, and he says, guys, look at us. We need more men if we're going to support and protect the president of South Africa. Another staff man asks, so did you talk to Brenda about it? Brenda is Mandela's chief of staff. He says, yeah, uh, yesterday. And then there's a knock at the door, thinking it must be secretary with the president's agenda for the day. Jason says, ah, that must be Jesse with the schedule. Come on in, beautiful. And they open the door, and this is what they see. A whole bunch of white men dressed in suits enter, and Jason's alarmed. He says, what is this? Mr. Jason Shabala, one of them asks, that's me. Am I under arrest? Next slide. This is Captain Fader and the team reporting for duty, sir. What duty? We're the presidential bodyguard, the man replies. We've been assigned to this office. The man reaches into his jacket and he takes out a sheet of paper. He hands it to him and he says, here are our orders. And Jason takes the sheet and he scans it quickly. He says, wait a minute, you're your special branch, aren't you? That had been the police force that had killed many activists. Captain Fader nods in the affirmative, confirming Jason's suspicions before quickly referencing once more the papers in Jason's hands. Says, you'll see those papers have been signed, sir. Well, I don't care if they're signed. You just wait here. And Jason exits the room and the scene shifts to a secretary opening the door for Jason that leads into President Mandela's office. We've got that scene here. Mandela is seated at his desk. Sorry to disturb you, sir, Jason says. You look agitated, Jason. Well, that's because there are four special branch cops in my office right now. Oh, well, what did you do? Nothing. I didn't do anything. They say they're presidential bodyguards and they have orders signed by you. And Jason hands the papers to Mandela. Ah, yes, he says. Well, these men have special training. They have lots of experience. They protected uh, President de Klerk, the last white president of South Africa. Jason responds, yes, but that doesn't mean they need to. Stop it, Jason. You asked for more men, didn't you? Got a slide here. Yes, sir. I asked, Mandela cuts him off again, says, when people see me in public, they see my bodyguards. You represent me directly. The rainbow nation starts here. Jason, reconciliation starts here. Reconciliation, sir? Yes, Jason, reconciliation. Comrade President, not long ago, these guys tried to kill us. Maybe these four guys in my office tried to kill us. And often they succeeded in doing just that. And we have one last one here. Yes, Mandela replies, I know. But forgiveness starts here too. Forgiveness liberates the soul. Forgiveness redeems and removes fear. This is why it is such a powerful weapon Jason, please, Jason, please try. And the man whom apartheid had wounded more than anyone else became the very man pleading for reconciliation. Friends, that is what Jesus is doing for you now. 
Jesus is speaking to you. The man who was wounded more than any other. The one who is now King of kings and Lord of lords is pleading with you today saying, Church, trust me. Please, church, reconciliation begins here. Please, church, try. Please, church, try. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You, Father, for Your faithful love and that You gave us Your Son. You cleansed us. You washed us. You adopted us. You gave us absolute security, overflowing comfort in Christ the Lord, our King. And so we consecrate to You the elements on this table. We consecrate to You now this bread and this cup, Lord, that You administer the Gospel to us that we might break free from our individuality and our individualism and all of our assumptions to be the church in all its power and all its diversity and all its splendor that we might be the church here and now for the Central Corridor, for St. Louis, for all the nations You've gathered in this place, Lord, that Jesus might be praised. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you.